Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey and on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Pod. This episode is sponsored by the Classic Learning Test. The CLT is challenging the College Board, the so-called nonprofit that owns the APs, the PSAT, and the SAT exam with alternative assessments. The reality is that standardized testing drives curriculum. What gets taught gets tested. The College Board focuses on bland informational texts, while the CLT puts students in front of the authors that we love here at Sacred and Profane Love. Dante, Flannery O'Connor, St. Augustine, you get the idea. If you have a son or daughter that is in the 10th or 11th grade, they can register for the June 19th CLT and they can take it from home via remote proctoring. You don't have to drive them to a testing site. They get their score back within a week and they can then send those scores to more than 200 partner colleges that accept the CLT and also colleges the CLT is not partnered with, but who will still consider the CLT as a supplemental part of the application. If you want to learn more, go to cltexam.com. You can also check out their podcast, Anchored, hosted by Jeremy Tate, and featuring conversations about classical education. In this episode, I speak with Morten Hoy Jensen about Jens Peter Jakobsen's novel, Niels Luna. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, everyone. You're listening to episode 34 of Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and literature podcast hosted by me, Jennifer Frey. This morning, I am delighted to be joined by Morten Hoy Jensen. He is the author of A Difficult Death, The Life and Work of Jens Peter Jakobsen, which was published by Yale University Press in 2017. His writing has appeared in the New York Review of Books, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Point Magazine, the New Republic, the Wall Street Journal, Commonweal, and the American Interest, among others. He is currently writing a book, or maybe just finished a book, I'm not sure, about Thomas Mann's novel, The Magic Mountain. Welcome to the podcast, Morton. Thank you so much. So you've written this book, A Difficult Death, which is sort of part intellectual history, part biography, and part literary criticism on the life and work of Jens Peter Jakobsen. And when you initially wrote to me about this, I had no clue who Jens Peter Jakobsen was, and I had never heard of a single piece of his writing. And since I've read uh, the novel that you also sent me, thank you for that, Niels Luna, and your book, which I read to prepare for our conversation today, I've been kind of asking around, you know, with my very literate friends, and it seems like the same story. Like, maybe they've heard of him, but most of them haven't, uh, but nobody's read him. So the thing is, having read this novel, he's an incredible writer. It's an absolutely incredible novel. It's honestly, I think it's probably now up in my top five of novels that I've ever read. I loved this novel. So look, why don't we know who this guy is? What, what's going on there? Um, well, one I think is, is just the, the language barrier. I mean, Scandinavian writers tend to struggle in translation. 
um, much more so than French or German or Spanish or Italian writers. Um, it's also the case with Jakobsen that he he died very very young. He was just a little over thirty eight when he when he died, um, and wasn't very well known outside of Scandinavia at the time of his death. Um, and the if if people have heard of him, usually they have come across his name in in Rilke's uh, letters to a young poet, um, in which uh, Rilke says to um, uh, his his correspondent that um, he always has two books with him: the Bible and the complete collected works of Jens Peter Jakobsen. Um, so I think if if anyone has heard in England or America uh, of Jens Peter Jakobsen, it, it's thanks to Rilke. Uh, he's also mentioned a lot in his letters and so on. Um, but there wasn't really many good translations of his work until fairly recently. Um, mm -hmm. There was the, the novelist Henry Handel Richardson translated Nils Luna in the late 19th century under the uh, odd title Siren Voices. Um, and then I think it was translated again in the 20s, but didn't do very well. Um, and then in 1990, I think, uh, Tina Nanali, uh, who's a great, great translator from Danish, um, she um, translated it, and that's the the edition that you've read that Penguin Classics has now published. Um, yeah, so I mean, obviously, I have not read it in the original language, but I I think it's quite beautiful. Yes, it is. It deservedly won uh, a pen translation award for the translation because it's it's just astonishingly good. Yeah, I I can't say enough good things about this novel, and I can't thank you enough for sending it to me. But yeah, and it's the Penguin Classics edition, so it's so it's also cheap. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and available in most bookstores, I would I would assume. Does anybody go in, in bookstores these days? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Sadly, okay. So maybe let's just start by talking about Jens Peter Jakobsen. Like, mm -hmm. who is this guy? I mean, he, he's such a fascinating character, uh, despite having led such a short life, because he was born in a very, very remote uh, harbor town uh, in Denmark. Even today, for a small country, I mean, Denmark is roughly the size of the state of Maryland. Uh, but even today, it takes a while to get there. Um, and back then, it would have taken him probably up to two days to get to Copenhagen. So he was he called it the Siberia of Denmark because it was so remote. Um, but he grew up in this uh, very, very beautiful part of Denmark um, where there was a lot of um, um, fauna, flora, uh, a lot of beautiful nature, um, a lot of relics from the Ice Age. Um, and he developed uh, a very passionate interest in the natural sciences. And he went on to study at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, he studied botany um, and actually won a gold medal for uh, a dissertation that he wrote about a, a particular kind of Danish algae. Um, and, and then he began to translate the first Dane ever to translate the works of Charles Darwin. He translated both The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man and kind of became part of this uh, circle of intellectuals in Copenhagen in the um, 1860s um, and 1870s um, who were you know, more or less atheistical, very um, inspired by Darwin, by French literature, uh, by German philosophy. Um, and he, while he was very interested in natural sciences, he also uh, had started writing poetry at a fairly young age. So he was kind of torn between these two seemingly disparate, disparate uh, um, interests um, and eventually ended up dedicating his life to um, writing poetry, stories, and, and novels. 
Um, but he retained throughout his life a very passionate interest in the natural sciences. He collected flowers throughout his life. He had this big book where he would keep leaves and, and dried flowers and so forth. Um, so for that reason, he's uh, you know, a very unique and highly influential uh, writer in Scandinavia, both for his introduction of the ideas and theories of Charles Darwin, and then also for his, um, his prose writing. Yeah, so he doesn't have any formal training in writing. It seems, it seems like his formal education is, is more in the sciences. Yeah, purely in the sciences. Um, he, um, yeah, he, he, he graduated from the University of Copenhagen with a degree in, in, in botany and the natural sciences. Um, and his, his writing was purely um, self-taught. So why, why didn't he go on to do you know, serious scientific work? Why does he make this literary turn? Um, I think part of it was because he was diagnosed at a fairly young age. I think he was about 26 with tuberculosis, mm -hmm. um, which of course was uh, very prevalent uh, back then. And um, he was given a very grim diagnosis of, I think, a couple of years at the very most. Um, and so he, and he, was, he was already a fairly thin and, and somewhat frail young man and um, just became increasingly emaciated um, and struggled a lot with fatigue and, and the various other symptoms of tuberculosis. Um, and so he would spend the rest of his life barely able to really live the kind of life that he had led before when he was a young man in Copenhagen, sitting out late at night at cafes, discussing ideas with other writers. Um, he would spend much of the rest of his life uh, in the home of his parents, um, laying in bed and, you know, reading and, and dreaming of all the things that he would like to do if only he had more health and energy. Right. So in Siberia. <laughs> in, yeah. in the Siberia of Denmark, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the original title of this novel that we're going to be talking about was The Atheist. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I, I mean, I get the impression that this novel is to some extent autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so maybe, maybe we should just jump into the novel. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Insofar as the main character, Niels Luna, is somewhat a stand-in for Jens Peter Jakobsen. Is that fair? Side. Yeah, I think that's I think definitely true, especially the earlier um, chapters, his childhood. Um, I mean, again, there's a lot of uh, you know, gorgeous descriptions of, of, um, of um, the natural world and um, the way that he describes uh, growing up, playing with his friends and, and, uh, and so on. I, th I think that's very, very much um, based on, on Jakobsen's own experiences. And even when, when Nils first comes to Copenhagen as a young man, filled with um, ideas and he's committed to what he calls the new, uh, which is never really defined. Um, mm -hmm. But, but you know, we can assume that that means, you know, all these new uh, radical ideas about literature, religion, society, and so forth. Um, and of course, his um, um, desire to become a, a poet. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the main themes of the novel. What is this novel about? For me, it's, um, it's an interesting to read alongside something like uh, the Brothers Karamazov, because um, I, I always think that in, in that novel, Dostoevsky makes, makes the best case for or against uh, the existence of God um, in the form of the, the Grand Inquisitor. Um, and here you have um, a writer, an atheist writer, writing a novel in which essentially he's uh, demonstrating the difficulty of being an atheist. Um, and I think that's why he, the original title for the novel was The Atheist. Mm -hmm. 
because Nils Luna is subjected to uh, all kinds of misfortune throughout the novel. Everyone around him seems to die after a little bit of time. And uh, his own life uh, becomes this kind of aimless wandering. He, um, he doesn't really seem to do much writing, despite his, uh, his talk of being a great poet. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of roams Europe. He goes to Italy. Um, he, at one point, comes back to Denmark and lives on a farm. Um, and nothing, he, he just seems to, to kind of float through life. Um, and his, his youthful and very idealistic atheism gradually becomes very emaciated um, and becomes somewhat more, um, I mean, by the end of the novel, he's not even sure that he is an atheist anymore, necessarily, um, or well, that's, that's insufficient yeah. for him. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, we'll definitely have to talk about that because I, mm -hmm. I have some questions about that. But I think also it seems to be a novel about love and death. Like it mm -hmm. seems like every time he falls in love, there's a death. <laughs> and he falls in love three or four times, right? Or maybe it's yeah, just three. Yeah. It, sorry, is it is it more than three? I was thinking if we could technically count his aunt, uh, Adele, in the beginning. Which oh, is a he kind totally of, falls in yeah, love with her. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is sort of, I mean, that whole bit is, is really amazing. I mean, I'll, I'll just read. I'll read a little passage. I'm, I'm going to read out of this book because I want people to understand how wonderfully written it is or wonderfully translated, I guess I should say. <clears throat> so <Okay>. this is <laughs> this is young Niels falling in love with his aunt. Yeah. From that day on, Niels felt, this is page 25. From that day on, Niels felt anxiously happy in Adele's presence. She was no longer a human being like everyone else, but a wonderfully exalted creature made divine through a strange mystery of beauty, and he felt a heart-pounding joy in observing her, kneeling before her in his heart, crawling at her feet with self-effacing humility. But at times, the need to worship would grow so great that it demanded expression and an outward sign of submission. And then he would look for an advantageous moment to tiptoe into Adele's room and, a premeditated infinite number of times, kiss the little rug in front of her bed, her shoes, or whatever other keepsakes offered itself to his obsession. Yeah, that's like not a normal relationship with your aunt. <laughs> <laughs> but what I love so much about this novel, and, and this passage is just one of expression of it, is something that I think he's getting at, whether it's self-conscious or not, I don't know, is how love can become a kind of idolatry, can become a kind of worship, right? Yeah. And this is like a perfect, <laughs> a perfect case of that. He's like literally engaging in some kind of worship, right? Kissing the little rug in front of her bed, right? Exactly. And I mean, the, the details in all these scenes are just so suggestive and, um, and, you know, quite erotic at times, um, on, on, um, when he first in that scene, he, he comes across her laying on her, on her sofa. Um, and he, I remember that there's a point where he touches the door handle and just as a parenthetical remark, it is, it says that it, it had been warmed by the sun so that it burned his hand, just like yeah. a little say like that is, you know, um, it is just wonderfully suggestive. Yeah, it is. And so, and, and 
so his love for his aunt ends in death, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yep. is sort of how all of his loves end, actually. Yeah. Well, except yeah. for one, I guess. Does yeah, Fenimore for, die? Um, Fenimore doesn't die, does she? She doesn't, and neither does uh, Full Boy. Um, she oh, that's just, right. She ends up yeah. marrying someone else, but... Um, that's right. Yeah. But, oh, but they do end in death in the sense that, well, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm thinking, like, it's the death of Eric that is really the death yes. yeah, of the love right. of Fenimore. And that's then right. is there is there a death for Fru, how do you say her name? Uh, boy. Boy, is there a yeah. death? Uh, not there. Really, I mean, his parents die. Um, you know, is that while, when his mom dies? Yeah. Um, yeah so, okay. And that's when he, after she, she passes away, he returns to Copenhagen. And that's when he learns that she has um, gotten engaged to someone else. Right. Yeah. It always seems like there's like this love death pair. Yeah. And I and I think this sort of like young love that he mm-hmm. has, or <clears throat> maybe it's infatuation with his aunt, is is sort of the first love death pairing because because she dies. Uh, she dies of some illness. What happens to her? Um, I think it's uh, tuberculosis. If it's not said outright, it certainly seems like that's what it is. Um, yeah. Because yeah, she... because she's out in Siberia in the first place because... <laughs> yeah. For her health. Because, because she's sick. She doesn't want yeah. to be there. She wants to be in Copenhagen, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> There's also in this, this little love-death vignette, the, the most, I think, the most amazing rejection and... <laughs> in all of literature. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, This is incredible. But I, but I bring it up one, because it really is truly spectacularly devastating. But two, I feel like it has this broader significance. Mm -hmm. And, and I wonder if, I wonder if you feel the same way. So there is this like tutor, is it Air Bigum? How do you say that? Bigum, Yeah. 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 Big one. Yeah. So he falls in love with Adele. Apparently she's quite lovable. So he, he like approaches her and, you know, basically throws himself at her feet and it's like, I yeah. love you, blah, blah, blah. And so this is page 31. And she just rejects him in the most harsh and cold sort of way. <clears throat> so she says, you do me an injustice, Herr Bigum. I'm not laughing at you. You ask me whether there is any hope, and I reply, no, there is no hope. There is certainly nothing to laugh about. But let me tell you one thing. From the first moment you began to think about me, you have known what my answer would be. You have known it, haven't you? You've known it the whole time, but still you have driven all your thoughts and desires towards the goal that you knew you could never attain. I'm not offended by your love, but I condemn it. You have done what so many others do. People close their eyes to real life. They don't want to hear the no it shouts at their wishes. They want to forget the deep chasm it shows them between their longing and what they long for. They want to realize their dreams. But life doesn't take dreams into account. There is not a single obstacle that can be dreamed away from reality. And so in the end, they lie there wailing at the chasm, which has not changed, but is the same as it has always been. But they themselves have changed, for with their dreams they have goaded all their thoughts and inflamed their longings to the very highest pitch. Yet the chasm has not grown narrower, and everything in them longs so painfully to cross over it. But no, always no, never anything else. And if only they had watched out for themselves in time, but now it is too late. They are unhappy. 
<laughs> right? And then she she goes on, you know, to just be like, yeah, if you're suffering, suffer. Somebody's got to suffer. Like, yeah. too bad. Yeah. You know, I'm not into you. But it's so, <laughs> but I mean, so there's, you know, it's a, it's a cold rejection. But there seems to be like some kind of deep philosophical thing going on here. And it's noteworthy that Niels is like listening to this, right? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's observing this scene and it has an impact on him. So, I mean, do you think here all this stuff about, you know, human longing and the fact that, you know, the world is never going to satisfy, you know, your longings and you have to like give up the fantasy. That seems to me to be hitting at a theme in this yeah. novel. Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I, th I think the love in this novel is somewhat analogous to, um, to religious belief or to religious longing. Um, because in this scene that you just read, and also in, in um, Fulboy's encounter with Nils, um, you know, there is a rejection uh, of, of love as some kind of ideal. Uh, I mean, it seems that the men in this book are always, um, love, love is always kind of idolatrous, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, that it's, it's somehow, it's love that they're, they're putting on some kind of a pedestal, some kind of unrealistic vision or ideal of what love is supposed to be. Um, and it's a little bit similar with, um, with religious longing or with religious belief in this novel, that it is insufficient. Um, and that the difficult the challenge in this book is to try to find a way of affirming or bearing life as it is without um, taking these flights into fancy, whether in the form of idealized love or um, religious belief. Yeah, it's a kind of, I mean, you've written about this, wrote a piece in Commonweal about this, but it it really reminds me of Camus. Yes. I mean, this whole like talk about a chasm mm -hmm. and how you have to live life without illusions and it's 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 so explicit at times the um, the similarities between Jacobson and Camus that it's almost um, it almost seems to me impossible that Camus had not read this at some point. Although I feel like if he had, he would have mentioned it. Um, but even, I mean, you know, he even refers to uh, his existential malaise at one point as nausea. He mentions Sisyphus at one point in the novel. Yeah, he does. Mm -hmm. uh, compares himself to Sisyphus, which is just so, you know, I, I remember just almost like gasping when I first read that. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I mean, Jacobson's atheism is very, very similar to um, Camus' atheism. Uh, yeah. Not, not this positivistic, rational atheism, but... Uh, a negative belief, um, mm -hmm. the, the acknowledgement that you have to, that God is not, you know, you can't, uh, you're, you're always trapped in a relationship with, with the, the God that you deny exists. Um, right. and that, um, even if you don't believe in God, that doesn't answer the, the, the metaphysical questions that, that God is there to answer in some sense. And so you have to come up with something, you know, some kind of replacement, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what Nils in some ways struggles to do throughout the entire novel um, and, and never really comes up with an answer. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, so I think there's a kind of, I mean, in this amazing projection of Arabigum, yeah. <laughs> we, we do have this kind of, I don't want to say foreshadowing because it's not really the right word, but we, we have this, I don't know, kind of encapsulation of a broader theme in the novel, but that, 
but that the character himself doesn't quite grasp the full mm-hmm. significance of this yet. So he's he's young at this point. I don't, I don't yeah. know how young he is at this point, but yeah, I forget. I think I mean he's very young. Like maybe is he ten or eleven or twelve or something? something yeah, like so maybe he's like a a tween. A tween. <laughs> we, we we would say today, yeah. and yeah, and you know he's. So he, he himself is in love with Adele in an idolatrous or, or sort of silly, infatuated sort of way. But that also is, I don't know, it's recognizable. This this kind of young this kind of young love is a recognizable yeah. thing. And so he sees this guy get brutally rejected. Mm-hmm. And he he sort of it's it's a bit of a revelation for him, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it says you know, for the first time, he had a fear about life. For the first time, he truly understood when life had sentenced you to suffer. The sentence was neither a pretense nor a threat. You were dragged to the rack and then you were tortured and no fairy tale liberation came at the last moment. No sudden awakening as if from a bad dream. This was what he understood with terror and foreboding. Yeah. Right. So he's, he sort of like gets a glimpse that, oh, <laughs> Maybe yeah. there aren't happy endings. Which Life doesn't which, about your your ideals and fantasies. That's right. Which in, which which is a kind of foreshadowing because yeah. let's face yeah. it, this novel does not have a happy ending. But then she dies, right? Yeah. Adele dies, and and this this I think is the beginning of the loss of whatever faith that he had, right? Because he doesn't, he pray. This is like one of the first times that Niels prays in the novel, right? Yeah. He asks God to save her, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, it, this is where you've, you have the first instance of one of the major uh, themes of the novel, which is the, you know, the theme of the unanswered prayer, um, which is, a, I mean, which re- recurs in, a lot in, in um, 19th century um literature and it, it's just it's very very explicit in this uh passage where um after she dies you know he he really it says on page uh, 36 his faith had flung itself in blind flight against the gates of heaven and now it lay on adele's grave with broken wings mm-hmm. um and and it goes on and on for you know a page or two um and it, it's just it's very very explicit about uh the pain and the disappointment and disillusionment of the unanswered prayer. Right. Yeah. And then he, you know, he just kind of rejects God, mm-hmm. right? In a in a self-conscious sort of way. Yeah, it says, if God had no ears, then Nils would have no voice. If God had no mercy, then Nils would have no adoration. And he defied God and turned him out of his heart. Right. Yeah. And then it also says at her funeral, right? He like stomps his foot with yes. contempt every time the pastor mentions the Lord's name. This this unanswered prayer invokes in him a kind of hatred of God, really. Yeah, exactly. You know, a, a kind of turning away and a hatred. And I think that's, I mean, that's that's a common thing, you know. Yeah, there, there's a great book by a literary scholar Bernard Schweitzer called uh, Mysotheism. It's called the hatred of God, but it's he, he uses the term mysotheism to to describe. I mean, this very fascinating um, and very complicated relationship that that certain writers have had with with God, and, and certainly Jakobsen is one of them. And Nils Luna, very explicit here, um, you know, hates God, um, right. 
and he he objects to God as a kind of um, you know as an unjust uh, maker. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because <clears throat> this is something that just sort of interests me generally when people you know reject God because God didn't give them what they wanted, mm-hmm. which of course is very common. Mm-hmm. And and it always makes me wonder. See, because I wasn't raised in a religious house, so I have no religious upbringing, mm-hmm. which I think in a way was a blessing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just suspect that whatever upbringing I would have had, it would have been terrible. <laughs> but, but I didn't, right? So I never mm-hmm. believed that there was a God who was supposed to give me whatever I wanted. Right. But it seems like a lot of religious people think this, and it's very strange to me, you know, because that's kind of just not how it works. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't yeah. know how people get into this framework. I mean, of thinking that you know, well, the point of prayer is to is to get what I want, right? It's about yeah. my will. <clears throat> it, it's difficult for me to get in that headspace, but I think it is very. I think it is a very sort of honest, real human thing, you know, that people, when confronted by death, they get angry mm-hmm. at, you know the thing that supposedly created them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think also with, with the unanswered prayer, it's, it's not necessarily that you're not always getting what, what you asked for, but I think it's, it's also that it, it seems to uh, symbolize the silence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is, this is when you are you know, communing with God in some way, and, and yet there is just silence on the other end of the line. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, true. Fair enough. And, and I think, you know, in a way, the book is about love, death, and God, but it's really about the absence of God, you know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So that's, so that's kind of like the first love-death pair, and it, and it sends Niels in, in a certain obvious direction. And, yes. and at this point, he becomes not an atheist in the sense that, like, he's indifferent to God, but an atheist in the sense that he hates God. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, that's why, um, I mean, what I love about this novel is that it, it, it demonstrates all the paradoxes of atheism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this as, as an atheist myself. Um, and I, I like that. Um, I like the paradoxes and the contradictions. It, it seems much more human to me than the kind of Richard Dawkins, um, scientific, rationalistic, uh, very shallow approach to these questions. Uh, because the truer the truer liberation would just to be an agnostic mm-hmm. and just kind of you know uh, which is just like a cosmic shrug um but instead he as you say he's he's not indifferent towards god uh he's you know he's angry he's defiant uh, he's rebellious he he hates god in these moments yeah i mean i th- i think it was pope benedict that was saying you know you can you can be an atheist or you can be a theist but agnosticism is not an honest intellectual posture yeah, and I like- in a way, and I think that's true, actually. I think that's true as well. Yeah. Don't, don't make me defend it, but I think it's true. <laughs> and I think, you know, Niels is a little too, a little too honest for agnosticism, right? Absolutely. I think for him, it has to be a, a yes or a no, but, but he kind of, so at this point he's a definite no. <laughs> And now he, I guess we might jump ahead to his second love, yep, right? Absolutely. This is the mm-hmm. love for Fru Boya. Yep. 
Am I, am I saying that right? So let's talk about yeah. that love. Let's talk about who she is and what's going on with him when he falls in love for the second time. Sure. Uh, I, I love the, her character. Um, I think she's, it's astonishing with Jakobsen because he led such a, a circumscribed life because of his uh, tuberculosis. Because, I mean, he, he really just spent um, the last 11 years of his life slowly dying. You know, he was a complete convalescent. Um, and yet, and he, yeah, we don't know a ton about his life as a young man in Copenhagen, but um, based on what we do know, it does seem unlikely that he ever engaged much in, in romantic or erotic relationships. Um, and so, and, and yet his novels are filled with um, very um, evocative <clears throat> descriptions of both uh, romantic and, and sexual love. Mm. And and I think I think Foboy is such an incredible, um, um, incredibly imagined character, um, especially for someone who you know led such a limited um, life. So, what is she like? Let's talk about her. So we meet her. She's she's older. Um, I think it's said it's mentioned that she might be just over thirty. Um, she is uh, widowed. So she had married uh, someone previously who who suddenly died. And now she um, lives this somewhat bohemian life in Copenhagen. She has a studio um, where lots of artists and writers and painters and architects come, and it's kind of like this intellectual salon. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are there are similarities here between um, um, between this novel and Flaubert's uh, Sentimental Education, in which the you know the main character Frédéric Moreau is is. Um, um, very infatuated with with an older woman as well, mm-hmm. um, and she is uh, she's very outspoken. She's very independent. She's very very intelligent, um, and is a kind of this very modern woman mm-hmm. uh, of a of a kind that we begin to see in in, in the nineteenth in, in certain novels in the nineteenth century. Um, and there's this great exchange that she has um, with with Nils when they first meet um, about love. And, and she, she objects to the way that men view women mm-hmm. uh, very passionately. And it, it's, it's wonderfully written. Um, she says that, um, this is on page 64, um, that we are, you know, that men worship women right. um, on a pedestal. And she says, we are godly enough for the way that we are. And Nils smiles and she says, no, you shouldn't smile. It, was, it wasn't it was meant as a joke. On the contrary, it was meant in all seriousness because that adoration in its fanaticism is basically tyrannical. We are forced to fit into the man's ideal. Like Cinderella, chop off a heel and snip off a toe. Whatever in us does not match up with that ideal image has to be banished. If not by subjugation, then by indifference, by systematic neglect, by denying all development. And whatever is lacking in us or is not part of our nature must be driven to the wildest flowering by praising it to the skies, by always assuming that we possess it to the highest degree, and by making it the cornerstone upon which the man's love is built. I call that violence against our nature. I call that conditioning. The man's love is manipulative, and we bow under it. Even those who are not loved bow under it, disgustingly weak as we are. Yeah, I mean, I think that she's on to something real, but then she goes on to say, oh, if only I were beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. If only I could use the power of my beauty to force men to worship me. 
right? Not their conventional bloodless ideal, but me as I live and breathe myself, every inch, every fold of my being, every glimmer of my nature. So it's like, she actually wants to be worshiped, Mm -hmm. but not as an ideal, as a real person. Yeah. She wants to be loved and worshiped for who she is as an, as an equal, I think not again, not as an ideal. And it's interesting that, that this is also one of the, the themes of the novel that all the men uh, seem to have this very, uh, as we mentioned before, you know, idealistic and, and idolatrous relationship to love. Yeah. Um, they all seem to constantly be kneeling and bowing and, and, yeah. and worshiping at the altar of woman. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, well, that's, you know, there's a long venerable tradition of that <laughs> that takes various forms, but I mean, I guess I suspect that one of the things that the novel is is trying to do, and surely this is somehow connected to the underlying vision of atheism, but one of the things that it seems to me it's trying to do is to question this impulse to worship, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, because it's always done in a very unhealthy manner. Uh, it seems almost masochistic. Yeah. Uh, times. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, it never... It never works out. I mean, not for Herr Bigum, uh, the passage, you know, with Adele's um, very blunt um, and an eloquent rejection of him, um, but also here with um, with Foboy. And uh, even though her and Nils have some kind of a relationship, um, of course, it doesn't end well because he goes away uh, when his father dies and then his mother dies and mm-hmm. he comes back. And, and instead of... Um, um, you know, she, she's basically, um, you know, she's gotten engaged and has, in a sense, um, you know, Nils accuses her of hypocrisy because the two of them like to mock convention and polite society. Um, but in the end, she kind of acquiesces and, and decides to enter into that, those conventions and, and that society. Right. Yes, I think the magnetic attraction of respectable Philistinism, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, is a real thing too. Yeah, of course. So, so yeah, so he falls in love with her. I mean, is the, I mean, how would we compare his love for Fruboya with his love for Adele? Is it more real? In a way, I think he, he, he ends up making the same mistake that Habigam does, um, in the sense of that he, that he, you know, he, he puts Foboy on a, on a pedestal. It, it's, it's very much, I think, a, an, an, an unrealistic, um, an idealized love. Um, and there, there are many, there are many, um, th- this book is a very interesting book to read also alongside Madame Bovary. Yeah. Uh, not just in terms of the adultery and so forth, but also in the, in the constant negotiation between prosaic reality and you know, the imagination, fantasy, these ideas of romanticized love and so forth. Right. Um, And we we didn't mention this, but, um, you know, on the first page of the book, um, Nils's parents are described Mm -hmm. and, and his, his kind of double nature, his double inheritance is very explicitly stated. He has a father who is very down to earth, very prosaic, and he has a mother who is very, very romantic, Mm -hmm. um, reads poetry and very kind of, you know, dreamy and so forth. So that's stated very explicitly on, on the first two pages. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wonder then if there's something that he's trying to say about literature and poetry, right? That it's, that it ought, 
you know, that if it's any good, it ought not to be fantasy. Yeah. And, and, and Jakobsen, uh, he was, he wrote his first novel, uh, Maria Grube, uh, which is also wonderful, um, was the first kind of was received as the first work of, of literary realism. Um, the first realist novel in Scandinavian literature. And it hugely inspired Strindberg, Hamsun, Ibsen. Uh -huh. uh, and that, that was, so that he's, he's known in Scandinavian literary history, he's kind of seen as the first realist writer uh, in Scandinavia um, on par with Flaubert, Turgenev, and so on. Yeah, so can you say a little bit more about what you mean by literary realism? So in the sense of having, you know, a, a, the, uh, the realist novel. Uh, so, um, the idea that the novel shouldn't preach its, its morals to, to readers. Um, it should attempt to portray life as it is, uh, warts and all. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it, it, it shouldn't be idealistic, uh, previously before Jakobsen, um, Danish literature was very filled with this pastoral idealism. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, Jakobsen along with um, mm -hmm. other writers of his generation, uh, begin to take a more realistic view of, uh, not just society, but also of, uh, human character. Mm -hmm. I mean, the interesting thing about Jakobsen's novels is that they're a little bit kind of haphazardly composed. Um, partly I think because he was so sick when he wrote them. Um, but they're, they're fairly short, but also sometimes wildly overwritten. Um, and one of the criticisms that was leveled at them when they were published was that they weren't, they were incoherent. That there wasn't a, a red a red thread that you could draw through them and, and see the character each character kind of develop in this coherent uh, manner, um, but I think that that's what um, is is very uh, radical about his his novels. He sees the human uh, hu human character not as this uh, this whole that you can easily comprehend, but as something filled with things that don't add up. Mm -hmm. uh, with unconscious desires, uh, contradictions, paradoxes. Mm -hmm. um, and and Freud, interestingly, read this novel and was completely bowled over by it. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see why, I mean, in, in all yeah. these underlying mm -hmm. erotic um, and, and unconscious um, things that are constantly sort of simmering um, beneath the, the page. Yeah, so I, I mean, probably one of the reasons that I love this novel so much. One, my favorite novel is Madame Bovary. <laughs> ah, yes, well. But two, I'm very attracted to this kind of uh, Murdochian vision mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. art is and what good literature is. And she, in her writing, she opposes art to fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. She thinks that art is always trying to, I mean, she says, you know, it's a, it's a cognitive enterprise. It's trying to reveal something true. It's doing it in a totally different way from philosophy or science, but it's, I mean, for her, if it's not saying something true, if it's not honest, if it's not portraying reality, it's not, not real art. Right. Do you know what that? So there's a collection of hers called, I think, Mysticism and, and Existentialism. Oh, great. Yes. Phil, Phil Clyde really turned me on to that book. Yes. Well, who do you think turned Phil Clyde on to it? <laughs> 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 that was me. I'm going to take credit for that. I'm going to 
Don't tell you said that. <laughs> <laughs> he listens to this podcast. Hi, Phil. So yeah, she she has there's a bunch of different meditations on this theme, but yeah. the place to start is philosophy and literature. It's right. the very first essay, I think. Okay. And actually, it was originally a television interview, which you can watch on YouTube, which is sort of like Ooh, amazing because it's like 70s TV, mm. you know, so everybody has like bad hair and bad teeth and the lighting <laughs> is really crazy. And but it's like real intellectual conversation at mm -hmm. such a high level. And it's just yeah. TV. I mean, it could never happen now. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Anyway. What, what was I, where was I going with this? Sorry, uh, well, now I'm lost in my Murdoch no, no. thoughts. <laughs> I mean, you said in, in, in her, her idea about uh, art versus fantasy. Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of picking up that theme here. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's why I like it then. Because I'm very, I can't, I can't yet fully defend this view. I can't really fully defend the Murdochian view, especially with my students, but, but I'm super attracted to it. Okay. I would like it to be correct. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it is correct, but I would enjoy it if it were correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so then, so in the middle of this relationship with Fru Boya, his mom dies. And I think, so he takes his mom to Switzerland. Yes. Isn't that correct? Yes. To yeah. there's some oh yeah because they want to go. There's like some Rousseauian reason for that. What was can you what's going on there? Yeah, it, it's it's an odd. I always sort of forget about this little uh, interlude in the novel. Um, it's uh, I mean yeah. So she I mean she's the one that has kind of she you know she more or less not quite apologizes, but she's worried that she has filled uh, Nils's head with unrealistic dreams and fantasies. Right. Um, they have this exchange at one point, and he says uh, that this on page 80, Mother, I am a poet truly in my very soul. Don't think these are childish dreams or dreams of vanity. If only you could feel how much grateful pride I feel at the best, uh, at the best in me and what a humble joy it is to say this so impersonally and without arrogance that you would believe it the way I so fervently wish that you would. Dearest, dearest, I will join in the fight for greatness. And I promise you that I will never falter. Always be faithful to myself and what I possess. Only the best will be good enough for me and nothing more. No compromises, mother. Yeah. I mean, I really, what struck me about this whole vignette with his mother is there, he dwells on her longing for beauty. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like another one of these basic human longings that yeah. probably at the end of the day, he thinks will just be unfulfilled. But right before she dies, this is page 84, I, I guess they're, they're just kind of, I, I think they're just looking at, mm -hmm. at nature. I think they're looking at the mountains. But it says, in the midst of all this beauty, she sat with unanswered longings for beauty mm -hmm. in her heart. And only on an occasional evening when the sun sank behind elegantly sloping heights of the Savoy and the mountains beyond the lake seemed made of brownish opaque glass with the light practically drowning in their steep sides, would nature capture her senses? For that was the time when yellow lit evening mists hid the distant Ura Mountains and the lake, red as a copper mirror with golden flames, scalloped by the sun-red glow, seemed to merge with the radiance of the heavens into one vast, brilliant sea of infinity. Then once in a great while, it was as if her longing were silenced and her soul had found the land that it sought. 
right? So there's this longing in, yeah. in his mother, you know, mm-hmm. for beauty, mm-hmm. right? Which maybe gets mixed up for her with fantasies. And it seems to me that that longing for beauty is one of those longings that maybe Jakobsen thinks can't fully be satisfied, you know, that, right. yeah. yeah. That, there, that there's always more more of it, right? I mean, there, you can't sort of capture beauty. There's always more beauty. Uh, and and it's, this is, and this passage is that you just read, again, makes me, now makes me think of Camus. Yeah, absolutely. And his, um, the way that he kind of, uh, you know, his, his secular commitment to the physical world, um, to the, the sun and the sea and sand and the mountains of Algeria. Um, and I sometimes wonder if, you know, I mean, Jakobsen, if he had, if he had lived in the Mediterranean or something, if he wouldn't have, I mean, maybe lived longer, uh, due to the climate, but also had, have developed perhaps a healthier, um, somewhat more life affirming atheism or <laughs> more, more in line with, with Camus very, um, you know, very erotic, um, Mediterranean existentialism. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? But he wasn't in the Mediterranean. He was in <laughs> Siberia. And no, I, I, I mean, my own reading of Camus, which I think I've talked about on the podcast before is mm-hmm. that I think he's sort of an Augustinian, mm. uh, but without grace. Yeah. Right? yeah so, yeah. you know, St. Augustine is the great writer of the restless heart right, of these longings. And I think that Camus thought, you know, experienced those longings, experienced the human condition of longing for the infinite, Mm -hmm. right? Because like you said, beauty can't be captured. It can't, it can't, it can't by us, right? Because there's something inexhaustible about it. And the same is true for truth and for goodness, you know, what the medievals called the transcendentals. They can't be exhausted, but we long Right. We, we have these longings for them. Now, Augustine eventually thought that the longings would be satisfied, right, by yeah. that which is being in truth and goodness and beauty itself, by God. But of course, it won't be satisfied in this life, but only when one can have a vision of God, right, see him, which you can't do now for various complicated reasons. <laughs> you know, Camus is, is someone who I think is very honest about human nature and who also, by the way, wrote his dissertation on St. Augustine. Yeah, absolutely. But so, so he definitely read Augustine and who I think experienced these longings and had a kind of honesty about them, but just thought, yeah, there's nothing that there's no there there, right? These longings (laughs) have, they have a telos that doesn't exist or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this for him, I think is the essence of the absurd, right? Like this is crazy. It's crazy that we're set up to long for something we can never have. That's sort of the human predicament. And it seems to me that, yeah, there is, there is something of that all throughout this novel. Absolutely. And in, in the, in the attempt, I mean, Jakobsen's, um, constant, uh, evocation of the natural world is again, I think a similar is analogous to Camus, uh, descriptions of the sand and the sea and, and so forth. And his, this great passage in one of his early lyrical essays where he says that, um, I want a life that tastes of warm stone, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, a beautiful uh, sentence. And you see that here. I mean, I think in this scene that you just read that, uh, Nilsuna's mother glimpses 
you know, beauty is fleeting, right? And so uh, that's why we can't capture it. But it just in this moment, she briefly possesses it. Right. And that in some way, that's the only thing that you can kind of hope to, to do, that it, it's going to be something fleeting, just in the same way that life is fleeting. Right. And nothing stays. Nothing right. is permanent. Yeah. And then in the next paragraph, she's dead. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And then he goes back and, and Fruboya has uh, left him for someone more respectable. Mm -hmm. And then there's this, I call it his Christmas Eve optimistic atheism. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is, yeah. I mean, this was one point in the novel where I felt genuinely annoyed because it felt to me dishonest, right? It felt mm -hmm. to me like this, I don't know, it's just a kind of bullshit atheism where it's like, you know, it's, it's like the new atheist or, or maybe even a certain kind of reading of Marx where if we just, if we just somehow get rid of like all the bad stuff, you know, capitalism and, and oppression and, you know, these boogeymans that we've created through our imagination, like, we'll just be ecstatically happy. That doesn't seem true at all. Right. To me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I, I think I think it's giving the new atheists too much credit to say that this reminds uh, us of them. But, uh, but I think the, the comparison to Marx is interesting because uh, one of the very, very influential books um, not just in Denmark, but throughout the 19th century uh, for atheists was um, uh, Ludwig Feuerbach's uh, The Essence of Christianity, yeah. uh, which George Eliot translated into English and Jakobsen read it. Uh, everyone yeah. read it, reading it at this point in in, um, in intellectual circles in Copenhagen. And it's very close. This passage is very close to that kind of Feuerbachian, uh, very humanistic and, and somewhat utopian um, atheism. And of course, Feuerbach uh, inspired Marx in, in certain ways and so forth. Um, so I think that's absolutely uh, a correct um, comparison. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, it is very utopian. Um, this idea that, and, and his, his uh, interlocutor here is this, this doctor um, who acts as a kind of foil to him. Um, and he tells him, Atheism, he, this is him, the doctor telling Nils, atheism is so boundlessly pedestrian and its goal in the long run is nothing less than a disillusioned humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said earlier that you, some people say the novel is haphazard, but I don't find that at all. So this doctor is with him in this first kind of optimistic utopian atheism, but this same doctor is with him at the end, right? Yes. Yeah. when he has a very different perspective. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that it's not at all by accident. But one thing that he says at this point in the novel, and I guess this is kind of something we're talking about, Niels says to the doctor, there is no God and the human being is his prophet. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Uh, so it's funny, I've had a conversation with James Wood about this because uh, he told me that, and I didn't realize this, that Cormac McCarthy uses the exact same line in the road. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, yep. Uh, I forget where, in which part, but the exact same line. I love that. Um, yeah. Um, and I mean, it, I think, I think it's, it's, um, an expression, uh, of the, you know, it's kind of like the, the classic negation or the, the paradox of atheism. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you can read that, read it in that sense as like an expression of the, the atheistical paradox that, 
um, you're you're denying the existence of of some of, of, or rather you, you don't believe in someone who you keep talking about. Like you can't you can't escape the language of of God uh, as as right. an atheist. You're you're in this trapped relationship with a being that you supposedly don't believe in. Right. Um, and um, um, you know the. There, there, there's, there's a similar quote in, um, in, in Beckett's Endgame when they pray and it says, the bastard, he doesn't exist. Right, um, right. It, in, a, in a obviously much more funny way, it captures this, the, same, the same paradox. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, that's, that's what I think um, that line kind of suggests. Yeah, so at this point, like, his atheism is just a different kind of faith. But rather mm -hmm. than believing in, rather than have the faith be in God, right? The faith is in man. And I mean exactly. faith in the sense that, you know, it's believing in things that you can't see and you can't prove, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is no evidence, right, that that human beings can can get together and live well and, and not be jealous and envious and cruel. Like there's no evidence for this whatsoever. whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of evidence <laughs> for the opposite. Right? right, exactly. So it's a kind of faith, right? Mm -hmm. That, oh, if we just kill God, like, I forget what it, how exactly he puts it. I mean, it's some real pie in the sky stuff. Um, oh yeah, here we go. This is yeah. page 106. Um, let's see that enormous stream of love, which now rises up towards that God who is believed in will bend back over the earth when heaven is empty with loving steps towards all the beautiful human traits and talents with which we have empowered and adorned God in order to make God worthy of our love, goodness, justice, wisdom, who can name them all. Don't you realize what nobility would spread over humanity if people could live their lives freely and meet their deaths without fear of hell or hope of heaven, but fearing themselves and with hope for themselves? How our conscience would grow and what stability it would bring if passive remorse and humility could no longer atone for anything and no forgiveness was possible except to use goodness to redeem the evil you so evilly committed. Like to me, this is like some John Lennon sort of stuff, you know, imagine, <laughs> imagine all the people, right? Yeah. And I'm just and, like, I'm sorry, but I've been on this earth too long at this point yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to believe in that. And the doctor, the doctor says to him, you must have an amazing faith in humanity. Atheism yeah. will make greater demands on people than Christianity does. Yeah. Um, so he sees right through it uh, correctly yeah. in this case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea that the loss of transcendence would be good for us, I, I, that is not a view that I can really understand. Okay. I want to talk about Niels and Fenimore because... Yeah. I, this to me is really the best part of the novel. And one of the reasons that I love it is that it's just so honest about romantic love, mm -hmm. right? Anyway, it, it, but yeah, so let's talk about it. One, it is adulterous, but two, it's even worse because the adultery is with the wife of his best friend. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not. It's not ordinary run of the mill adultery. It's right. And he and this is um, he and his friend Eric uh, meet her and, and both fall in love with her at the same time. Yeah. But she falls in love with Eric and they move away. And then there's this again this interlude of I think it's three years or so where Nils is just li living this empty life. Um, he's tired. He, he hasn't been able to commit to really anything. Again, he's just kind of floating through existence. Um, and then he goes to visit them 
and you know they begin this affair and and, and he actually moves across the fjord uh, from them and lives close to them mm-hmm. um, and of course they they're able to have this uh, adulterous relationship in part because Eric who's a painter um, has kind of fallen in with a group of, of dissolute locals who drink and play cards. So he's, uh, kind of absent, um, Mm -hmm. and, and Nils kind of steps in and, and, um, and, you know, seizes, um, Fenimore for himself. Right. And it's, I mean, again, I just see so many resonances here with Madame Bovary, but I feel mm-hmm. like one, there is again, this religious aspect to it, right? Mm-hmm. Where he talks about needing to humble himself and bending his knee and calling her holy. Yep. And, you know, and, and the just kind of obsessive character of it, the kind of all consuming obsessive character of it and a, and a kind of happiness that it brings him. This, it is kind of this ecstatic, you know, sort of thing, but at the same time, it's like a fantasy because, yeah. right. It's a love that comes without any commitments, right? Yeah. It's a love that is cut off in every way from society. Mm-hmm. right from your place in the world it's like this very private hidden thing mm-hmm. and and i and i think it's a I, I you know i i'm not denying that it's love i i think it is a familiar kind of love and that he's he's very honest about the sort of happiness it can and cannot bring you and mm-hmm. oh sorry go ahead yeah i was gonna i just uh saw this passage on page 129 when he's describing um, Eric and um, Fenimore's home um, and, you know, describing how they were young and in love and and they settled into this estate. And then at the very bottom of page 129, it says, but every palace of happiness that rises up has sand mixed into the foundation on which it rests. And the sand collects and runs out beneath the walls, slowly perhaps, imperceptibly perhaps, but it keeps running grain after grain. And love? Love is no rock either, no matter how much we want to believe it is. Yeah. 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 And of course, their their love, the love between Eric and Fenimore is kind of, I mean, he's sort of neglecting her, frankly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, he is. And so in a way, Niels kind of sweeps in and exploits, you know, her unhappiness. Mm-hmm. He kind of sees, yeah, he kind of, kind of sees an end there. But then... It's so interesting to me the way that their love ends. It ends every mm. bit as abruptly as it begins, yes. right? And and once again, it ends in death, but not in Fenimore's <clears throat> death this time. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so uh, Eric is, uh, I think, drunkenly thrown from a horse um, and uh, I think dies instantly. Yeah, 19th century drunk driving. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, she, um, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, regards this as God's punishment of her uh, adultery um, and, and and breaks up with Nils, um, again, very abruptly um, on page. Let's see where it is. Yeah, so I'm trying to find this because it's like, 
this really absurdly long chapter that this all yeah. happens in. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I think, so, cause like she just gets a telegram. Right? Yeah. So this is like what? Page 160. Yeah. 60, uh, 60, yep. Somewhere around there. And she, I, you know, she's like really, so she rushes to tell Niels and she's really mad, you know, mm -hmm. and she calls him a wretch, a devious dog. Yep. She says, you came sneaking in here and stole your friend's honor because it was so poorly guarded. What? <laughs> didn't you steal it right from under his nose because he thought you were honest, you thief, right? So she's mm -hmm. putting it all on him. Yeah. Just, you know, I don't know how fair that is, but she suddenly is, I mean, it's almost like she hates him. Yeah. I mean, I think she's, you know, obviously projecting her own, um, self-loathing and, and so on onto him. Um, but, um, but it is very abrupt and, and it's interesting that a lot of these, uh, relationships that, that Nils has, uh, with women throughout the, the novel kind of echo in each other. Um, on page, they, they have an exchange early on in their relationship on page 139, when they're again, it sounds a little bit like his conversations with, uh, Fruboy, um, because she says, uh, at one point you can be certain that women are not such ethereal creatures as many a good youth dreams of. They are really no more delicate than men and they are no different from men at all. Believe me, the clay that they were both made from was a little dirty. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's interesting that they, they keep having these very similar, uh, conversations, um, or exchanges in, in each of these relationships. Yeah. And I think it's another place where death brings about a change in vision, mm -hmm. right? Like suddenly Eric's death, suddenly they both see that this is ugly. Yeah. Right. This thing that they thought was so beautiful is, is actually ugly and yeah. it sort of like shocks them. Mm -hmm. It, you know, it makes the scales fall from their eyes. It's like a revelation, Eric's yeah. death. And, and it's not just Fenimore, you know, Niels also sees the love between them now as base and petty, right? Mm -hmm. Not noble, right? Yeah. And I, and I think that's really, I think that's really fascinating because, you know, the death of Adele also brings about this massive change of vision. Exactly. There's a and, great... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, on, on page 163, uh, at the bottom he says, where should he flee from all these tentative efforts that always ended in the ditch? His whole life had been like this, and it would be no different in the future, he, know, he, he knew. He was so sure of it. And he despaired at the prospect of all those futile encounters and wished with all his soul that he might escape and be free from, the meaning, from this meaningless fate. This is what he's thinking right after uh, yeah. Eric's death. Yeah. And I think, you know, now we're going to get to our final love death pair, which is mm -hmm. Gerda and Niels. Mm -hmm. And that brings about another ch change of vision, I think, where his, you know, the sort of atheist that he is and the mm -hmm. way that he understands that changes. So Gerda and Niels, so he, he gets married <laughs> finally, yeah, right? Finally, finally he gets married. And he marries a very young girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, how young is she? Isn't she 17, I think, when they... Yeah, were... yeah. So he marries a very young girl, and they have a son. Yeah. And they're kind of like... So he he convinces Gerda to leave her Lutheran faith and to be an atheist like him, and he becomes very devoted to 
living this kind of, I don't know how to really describe it. It's like he's, he's really invested in living faithfully his ideals. And he's like a, he's like a farmer at this point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah, a farmer. Yeah. And, and yeah, he, he sort of very, uh, movingly instructs her in, in his atheism, but at this already at this point, his atheism is very different from the utopian atheism that we talked about earlier, because he, he warns her, you know, that this is not easy. This is hard. Right. Um, and, um, and so already, you know, there's been a, a very significant change in his attitude towards his, his own unbelief. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what, I mean, how would you describe the sort of atheism that he's giving to his wife? Um, I mean, what does he say? Let's see here. Um, so on page 176, um, so he writes in the, in the middle of the page, he also taught her that belief in a personal God who rules everything for his own good and in another life punishes and rewards was a flight from harsh reality, a futile attempt to remove the thorn from the bleak arbitrariness of life. And then further down, he says, he made his beliefs as beautiful and beneficent as he could, but he also did not hide from her how oppressively heavy and inconsolable the truth of atheism could be to bear during hours of sorrow in comparison with that bright, joyous dream about a heavenly father who guides and rules. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so he thinks it's kind of beautiful and noble, but hard, right? Does that seem fair? Exactly. Like he's clearly changed his, his, um, ideas about mankind uh, right. at this point, you know, that, that, that aspect is completely absent in this, um, in this vision of atheism here, right. it's much more about the individual human being right. rather than the futuristic vision. Right. So they're like the, so they're like the village atheists, like people know <laughs> that they don't go to church, but they're like sort of trying to live this noble life and to raise mm -hmm. their son. And they actually seem pretty happy. And then she gets sick and dies, right? And then she gets sick and dies. Yeah. And she, you know, on, on her deathbed, she, um, you know, she kind of, uh, disavows her atheism, um, and, and falls back on the bosom of her, her childhood faith. Oh yeah. She totally disavows it. Right. Yeah. She sends yeah. Niels out and calls her the pastor. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And yeah. there's this remarkable passage, this page 180, her strength diminished rapidly with a strange flickering, but even in the darkness, when Niels took her in his arms for the last time to bid her farewell before the shadow of death came too near, she was still fully conscious, but the love that had been the greatest happiness of his life was extinguished in her gaze. Mm -hmm. She was no longer his. Even now her wings had begun to grow. She longed only for God at midnight. She died. Right. Yeah. So, so she's right. She's, she's flown up to something higher and left him behind. And in a way it's very related to Adele's death. Uh, where again, God takes Adele from Nils and here again, he loses his wife to God right before her death. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. And then very quickly, the son also dies. <laughs> this novel just rains misfortune. Uh, yeah. and, and this is a, this is, you know, a, a less than 200 page novel Yeah, and it's filled with death. Um, but yeah, this is, this is the, uh, one of the greatest parts of the book. I mean, when the, his son dies. And Nils prays. He yeah, prays, he prays God again. To spare his child. Yeah. Yeah. And very explicitly on page uh, one eighty three, um, Nils. You know, this is after he has died, and he, he says, 
It would do no good for him to say that the prayer he had made was a father's insane cry for help for his child, even though he knew that no one could hear his cry. In the midst of his despair, he had known what he was doing. He had been tempted and he had fallen. It was a fall from grace, a fall away from himself and from the idea. So, the, you yes. know, this is a clever inversion of, of uh, falling uh, away from your faith. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Case, his faith is his atheism. I mean, Jakobsen is very explicit about that. Right. In this novel, that atheism is a kind of belief. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, that he doesn't call it faith here, but he d calls it an idea with a capital I, mm -hmm. which makes me think that, you know, he's questioning it in a way because a huge theme of the novel is about not, not letting your ideas, right. Lose hold of reality, right. Yeah. Being yeah. captive to an idea rather than the actual truth right in front of you. So that's really interesting to me. And I hadn't noticed that before, but yeah, when his son dies, you know, he prays. And then once again, God <laughs> doesn't, doesn't intervene. Yeah. And right. He says mm -hmm. he, God, who, if he pleases, will trample on the one you love most here in the world and torture your loved ones underfoot back into the dust from which he himself has created them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, yeah. and then he's gone. So we have these, these two other deaths, two other kinds of love, right. Love of his wife yeah. and love of his child, which are, are, it seems to be the only really healthy yeah. <laughs> loves in the novel, but they're quite brief and they end in death. And then, and then Niels, I guess, like joins the army or something. Yeah. So, so the, the, um, it isn't said explicitly, but this would have been the, um, the war in 1864, uh, between Denmark and, and Bismarck's Prussia. Yeah. So many 19th century wars who yeah. can. <laughs> yeah. keep up. But, but, but I mean, before, before that, he has he has completely lost. I mean, he's completely disillusioned now. Um, right. And on page one eighty three, at the bottom, it says, "Atheism, the new truth's holy cause. What purpose did they all serve? What were they but names of tinsel for the one simple idea to endure life as it was, endure life as it was as it was, and let it shape itself according to its own laws." Um, and I mean, that's that's all that he's been trying to do in some way. Uh, throughout yeah. the novel is just to endure life as it is handed to him. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to me, the end was very, very evocative of Camus or very, very. foreshadowing. How, however, you want to parse that because it's very. this idea that, you know, the main virtue that you have to have is a kind of fortitude or forbearance. You just have to endure it. Right. Exactly. So not embrace it, right? Yeah. It's not it's not about learning to love the fallen world, the broken world, but just enduring it and living exactly. without living without consolation, mm -hmm. living without hope. I mean, it's so interesting to me that there's this connection with Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which I think is a novel about hope. Mm -hmm. A hope as as absolutely necessary for human existence, for survival. What, what does it mean to have hope in a hopeless situation? Yeah. But it seems to me that he's rejecting hope and as in a similar way that Camus explicitly rejects hope, right? Because hope yeah. is a theological virtue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing you're also thinking of the stranger. 
um, yeah. uh death at the end. And there's a, on page 185, at one point, Nils, so he's, he's wounded in this war and he's uh, laying in the field hospital uh, with, a, I think it's a chest wound. And at one point he thinks to himself, and, and yet there had been much beauty in his life. Um, and there's a similar moment uh, where in, in The Stranger, when Merceau is, is having a conversation with the prison chaplain, um, who asks, who keeps asking him, don't you wish for another life? And he says at one point, what would another life look like to you? Mm-hmm. And Merceau kind of at, responds in frustration, one where I could remember this life. Right. Um, and I feel like that's, it's a similar thing that's happening here where Nils is, you know, he just, he's just kind of remembering his own life and, and the, the beauty that there was in it because he knows that there is nothing after this. Um, and all he wants is to relive that life, even in all its misery and so forth. Um, and then of course, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the doctor that he previously had this optimistic Christmas atheist exchange with is there and um, asks him, you know, do you want a pastor? And Nils bitterly says, I have no more use for pastors than you do. Uh, And yet at the, at the bottom of that page, he says it would have been so good to have a God to whom he could complain and pray. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, I mean, there's something absurd about the ending, like literally, because there's this guy who there's, the, he's like in a field hospital, I think. There's this guy who's just keeps saying, ha ho ha, and like erratically <laughs> yeah. moving his limbs. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yep. And this is the backdrop of his death. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so it's not, he's not in a dignified, I don't know. It's not like his mother's death. Right. Where right, it's sort no. of this sublime, you know, a sublime vista in Switzerland. He's stuck in a field hospital. And you can smell the flesh around him. That's right. Where there's just a guy repeatedly saying, ha, ho, ha. And his limbs are like, you know, erratically <laughs> moving. Yeah. So there's a bit of this absurd element at the end, too. And it seems kind of depressing. Yes. Very. <laughs> it's like a super, de- <laughs> it's super depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very Danish, very Scandinavian. It's okay. I, you know, I feel like a sad, depressing ending can be a very honest thing, and it's realism, right? So. <laughs> yeah, and there's actually a letter in which uh, Jakobsen at one point writes to a friend that he hates. He hates the endings of most novels because they feel so dishonest or sort of faintly embarrassing. And he says the only real ending you can ever have is, is a death. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's very true to that in all his books. Yeah. So I think this is a great novel and, and I hope that my listeners will pick it up and read it because I think it's incredibly rich and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's, it's beautiful. The prose is absolutely astonishing. Yeah. So I, I just have a question. It seems like a, a good way to end it. So you're a literary critic. Does that seem like a fair? Yeah, that seems to be the most most accurate thing. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a literary critic. You hang out with a lot of Catholics, right? Yeah. At least online, yeah. and, and you write for Commonweal, yeah. um, but you're an atheist. So what's going yeah. on there? <laughs> That's funny. I can think about that myself. No, I was thinking about this when you said earlier that you didn't grow up in a religious household. I didn't either. I mean, obviously, yeah. Denmark is not well known for being a very religious country these days. Right. Um, but I became as a teenager, very interested in, in existentialism and, and in Kierkegaard and Camus and so on. Um, 
And it's just something that's always fascinated me. Um, I'm very sort of adolescently drawn to questions about the meaning of life. Um, and I think that's a very grown up impulse. I don't think it's okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, when I was 20 years old, I read the God delusion and God is not great. And I thought those were wonderful books at the time, uh, but then rapidly grew out of them and just be began to slowly develop, um, a, an enormous interest in theology. Mm. And I like atheism that engages properly with religious thinking and with religious ideas rather than just in that Dawkins manner of dismissing everything as superstitious nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been very, very influenced by James Wood in this regard because he is an atheist who, of course, was raised in a religious home and and knows his Bible, knows his theology. Um, and, and in his essays about religion and about religious writers really engages with the claims of theology and, and the various ideas. And it's, it's just, it's endlessly fascinating to me. Um, and I think also, I mean, atheism and, and, uh, religion are, you know, necessarily very, uh, attached to each other. Yeah. And it's an argument. Um, it's an argument that, that needs both sides. Yeah. Uh, and a, a proper atheism, I think needs to, to be, you know, theologically, uh, engaged, uh, philosophically engaged and not just based on some shallow scientific rationalism. Right. Well, we agree about that for sure. <laughs> well, and so I said it was my last question, but it turns out it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so this, so this book that you have, that is it forthcoming on Thomas Mann? Uh, yes. So it, it's not finished yet. Okay. Uh, it is taking me a lot, a lot longer than I had initially hoped it would. Um, I just extended my deadline with my very patient editor, uh, until May of next year. Um, okay. but I'm hoping to finish it, um, in the next few months. Okay. Um, well, we'll have to have you back on to talk about the magic mountain. Would love to Thomas because... Mann was very inspired by Jakobsen. So yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with Thomas Mann. Okay. <laughs> Me too. All right. Terrific. Okay. Thank you so much. This is really so much Yeah, this is a privilege. Thank you. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or on the app Lyceum. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Pod, and we're also on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy this podcast, leave us a positive review on iTunes, and also please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can go to www.patreon.com slash Pod to become a monthly patron. As always, I'd like to take a moment to thank our most recent patrons, Morton, Colin, Frank, and Rob. Thank you for your support. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Jessica Hooten-Wilson to talk about Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy and John Kennedy Tool's A Confederacy of Dunces. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Mm -hmm.